Hello everyone, this is Trey Borden, and welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do. Welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do. We are going to be tackling kind of, you know, this policing situation and the kind of crisis that we find ourselves in in this country and how we can really, you know, a lot of the last couple of months, you know, obviously there's been some very high profile events, you know, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. I mean, so many that I think galvanized people who really didn't think about this issue much, who maybe aren't part of communities that have had, you know, a fraught relationship with law enforcement. And I think that a lot of people are kind of waking up to that. And I think that like these protests and, you know, when you see things like defund police, when you kind of see all these calls for abolition, um, it, it seems as if uh, it's always kind of coming from the same voices. And I think that there are probably many voices within your community. I mean, you guys are part of our community. So that's like part of what we're trying to reestablish is it's not, you know, necessarily uh, the community versus the people that enforce the law. If anything is going to change kind of more sustainably and with kind of a, a longer, um, a lasting change than like, almost, you know, you need to be, if not leading the charge, at least supporting the types of efforts that might kind of create a more mutually beneficial relationship for um, these communities. So that's what today is hopefully going to be about is kind of hearing from you guys. I plan on doing a lot of listening. I definitely don't mind chiming in. Uh, but I, I really wanted to give this opportunity to kind of uplift a conversation between, you know, a reform-minded community member and people who are actually, you know, out there on the front lines, kind of putting their lives on the line or leading, you know, entire departments or precincts and kind of setting the tone um, for all of this. So I, I really appreciate you guys kind of like, you know, being willing to have this conversation and um, kind of come speak uh, authentically and honestly. And I, I guess let's get started. So I think the first thing to do would be just to, for those of us, um, for people listening who don't know who you are, please introduce yourselves, um, what region you're in and kind of what your role is. Um, let's start with Rochelle or Chief Brackney. It, it works for me, Rochelle, Chief Brackney, um, any of the above um, works. So I'm actually in Charlottesville, Virginia, which causes most people to pause. Um, when they start thinking about um, a minority multi-ethnic police chief in Charlottesville, Virginia, you know, home of the Unite the Right, um, where people were willing to kill over monuments and Confederate flags, um, and really has sparked that national conversation um, since 2017 around race, racism, and the intersectionality uh, around supremacist institutions. I have now been in law enforcement for 36 years. I'm trying to cover my face a little bit there, probably longer than Trey has been on this earth, basically. Um, and Almost. You know, I just turned 36, so almost. So look at that. So I literally will be starting my 37th year, so look at that. Um, but uh, more importantly, beyond wearing this uniform as the chief of police here in Charlottesville, you know, I am a proud black mom, um, wife, and um, originally from Pittsburgh. I retired after 30 years in Pittsburgh and bring that municipal perspective, but also was the former chief of police of George Washington University. So I bring also, what does that look like on our campuses and universities who are having these very same conversations around um, policing and the intersectionality of policing in their spaces that they live, work, play, and pray. 
All right. Well, thank you. And I definitely would love to, we'll be getting into your perspective as a black mom um, throughout all of this. I think that's really interesting as well. Uh, let's go back. Let's go down to Julius. Hey, Julius. Hi. How you doing? Uh, Julius Lewis, uh, police officer in Northern California, uh, near the greater Sacramento region, basically. Uh, I've been in law enforcement for a little over 24 years, almost 24 and a half years. Uh, started at a different agency. I worked uh, various assignments, policing in uh, the housing projects as a, as a community police officer. I worked five years in narcotics, going undercover, doing stuff with the every alphabet soup you can think of. Um, and a school resource officer at community policing. So kind of ran the gamut of that. Uh, besides that, <clears throat> as far as law enforcement, I've been an avid coach of youth uh, in our neighborhoods and all the way up through high school and college. Uh, proud father of two, and one is a boy, so a lot of stuff uh, really worries me, <laughs> especially with both of them being away at college. But, you know, that's what we're here for talk about that and kind of get some of that stress off and last but certainly not least brandon hey i'm brandon del pozo uh i am a postdoctoral researcher in drug policy and addiction at brown university in the, the marion hospital um that comes on the heels of 23 years in policing joined uh the police department in joined the nypd new york city police department right out of uh College, I was, was a philosophy major at Dartmouth. Like, what do you do when you major in philosophy in the late 90s? I'm, obviously, you, you joined the police. <laughs> um, yeah. I was a, a native uh, uh, Brooklynite, super high crime uh, city at the time in the, in the 80s and 90s. I wanted to do my part to make it safe. Thought I'd do it for a few years and then go to law school. Um, ended up making it a career. So I did 19 years in the NYPD. And then I did... Um, Four years uh, after that as the chief of police of Burlington, Vermont. Frankly, like my time in college gave me a real affinity for New England. I thought to be in a very, I, I police where Bernie Sanders lives, um, which meaning to say that, you know, the seat of American uh, leftist reform, super challenging job. Um, that is a whole other podcast. But the point is, so I had those 23 years in policing uh, and now I'm doing public health related research. All right. Well, thank you. And I, 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 I'm so glad that we have people who kind of stretch both coasts. Yeah, I am interested to see kind of like what it was like to kind of be policing in, in Sanders land, um, which I think is also a place that has like interesting gun policies and whatnot. Um, the first thing I wanted to say is kind of like, how have you been experiencing these last few months? I mean, you guys wear many hats. You guys are, you know, American citizens and just people kind of living in these communities. You're also, you know, in two of your cases, black people you know, experiencing this uh, kind of racial reckoning at the hand, you know, on the heels of some of these really high profile incidences. And then, you know, your last hat, which is kind of what we're here to discuss is you're also interpreting all that stuff as police who are kind of at the center of a lot of these conflicts and uh, who people are demanding answers from. So um, I guess who wants to go first? Why don't we start with our, our black mom, actually, because I thought that, since you said that, I think that's a really interesting lens through which to kind of interpret all of these things. So what's interesting about this current moment, um, but which is not new in these 36 years, I have always had to balance my blackness with what I do. Um, I've always had to balance my gender um, with what I do. So 
with the exception of being in my own household or around my own family, um, that is the only time I don't have to wear my black female policing hat, right? At home, I'm just home. But that external view by which people look at me and then which I have to examine myself is um, in these last months or so, let's say this last, really this last year, um, I've really had to, in some ways, surprisingly, defend myself, um, interestingly enough, um, as a black woman in policing um, to my constituents, um, some of who I call, and I would care for you, careful here, as I call them my semi-woke white friends, um, and my, um, because I act as the race translator for them, right, because they don't want to do the heavy lift or the burden of doing the work themselves. Um, and then in my black community, where I'm not always considered an advocate um, or an ally, in fact, just the opposite, often it's considered very differently than when I first started. I think you froze up just a little bit there. Rochelle, we need to get these departments better internet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe we can fund that part. <laughs> yeah, fund that part, as well as more training. They do sit in a profession that is at minimum 70 Rochelle, can you hear me? Oh, there. Yep. She'll be back. <laughs> She'll be back. Okay. Well, and also we can edit that part out. Here she goes. Yeah. She's back. Look at that. She's but back. I okay. I hope somebody else jumped in there to say and picked up that stream. So that might have been a perfect segue. And I've not had to balance it. So I can really just pass it over to my male um, counterparts um, to talk about how they've had to manage probably something more recently than, you know, I know I've had to manage for the last 36 years. All right, Julius, you want to jump in there? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I find it really interesting how you mentioned having the balance uh, because it seems like it's a dual balance. It's like a balance between your blackness and being a police officer in the community. Um, and then it's a balance between your blackness and and being a police officer inside the police department. So it's, it's almost like, well, those, anybody who knows me knows I don't have a problem with telling me that I'm a very proud police officer, but first and foremost, I'm a black person. I've always been, I've always embraced it. That's, that's just what it is. And so I don't have struggles with trying to fit in. And a lot of times I think uh, black officers feel like they have to change their personality uh, per se. Uh, to fit in with a certain group or mindset, I don't have that issue at all. So um, it really kind of bothers me that everyone can't just be who they are and bring what they have to the table, put it together and make a more, you know, homogenous and, and, and open community and society. But uh, those struggles do exist in this, in this profession. You know, like some people don't think you're black because you're an officer. And then some people inside the police facility say, well, you're not like them. And I'm always quick to say, yes, I am. Um, I mean, 
it, not all black people are the same, just like not all white people are the same, but sometimes people try to put you in a box and they don't know which box to put you in when you're a black law enforcement officer. Um, and, and so that, that's a bit of a, a challenge, but I really don't pay attention to that anymore. It might've bothered me a little bit in my mid years, maybe about five, seven years on, but after year 24, <laughs> I figured out I always have to be myself because I have to come home and live with myself. I have to, to be who I am to my family and friends. And if I start switching up, they'll be the first ones to tell me. So <laughs> I try to treat everyone with respect and dignity and, and that's it. That's where I draw a later line down. So yeah, it's, that's just how it is. And before we move on to Brandon, just because, you know, I want to, I want to dig a little bit into that in terms of, you know, as we, I mean, as a non-police officer, it has been really tough as a black person these last few months. You want to talk about, you know, it's like I went to Yale. I have like a lot of white people in my life who, you know, I love and they're friends. And it's been very overwhelming to kind of receive all of these messages and all of the, the backlog of years of not talking about this. Now that everyone wants to talk about it, I would imagine that for black police officers, not only are you kind of maybe getting that from your colleagues who are trying to, you know, maybe in some good cases make sense of the real kind of pain in these communities and how there might be some responsibility in the department for how they feel. And, and then from your community as black people saying like, how can you guys be a part of something like this or an institution that is rooted in, you know, slave catchers and racist, kind of however far back you want to go, how has it been to, to kind of navigate that? I mean, has, obviously you have, you know, dealt with this for many, many years, kind of being a proud police officer who's also a proud black person, but has it been more difficult or have there been different conversations or questions that you've been asking? Yeah. Like I, even I from your children, I'd imagine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's probably a challenge um, in a lot of ways. So, right, when you're talking about who you've been around and, and what you've experienced um, as well. So with the, the interesting thing about it is, and, and Brandon can speak to this as well, um, and, and Trey, I'm sure you can, right? So when you go to these PWIs, right, um, predominantly white institutions for those of us who don't know that, you know, it's just not HBCUs and like, um, um, so I'm sorry, Thanks. didn't realize I was still on. But um, so when you go to these places, you do have a lot of people who are interested in, like genuinely interested in your experience. But I think almost right now the, the over interest feels like an experiment versus an interest in my experience. And that's a very different place to sit in and having to sit with all of these. And I have a lot of people that are, are saying, oh yes, can you talk to us about that, right? But it then starts pulling you in so many different directions that are you able to really focus in on the work that needs to be done within your own um, agency or within the own profession because you're so busy trying to just explain what this has been like for decades and decades and decades on end. And you're not, none of us are fully equipped to do that. And nor should we have to do something like that as well. But also the good thing about this moment is, is that um, my experiences are now authenticated, right? So prior to this moment, 
oftentimes, you know, when I would talk about my experiences, it would come on the heels of some other negative. Either, you know, I was too emotional as a woman, I was too angry as a black woman, or I was, um, I need to just be grateful for being in my position because I was allowed to have access in either as a quote unquote quota or affirmative action higher. So I think now this moment um, really has allowed my real lived and some shared experiences with you know, my colleagues here to be authenticated and say, you know what, this is actually what has been the experience. And maybe as an institution, particularly in policing, we need to own how we have created um, an institution where it has been very challenging to be black or multi-ethnic or someone who's different, whether you're LGBTQ+, right? Policing has not been very friendly unless you fit into a certain mold. And this is a time where they're having to do a lot of self-examination um, and have to do that in front of the world. You don't get to do it behind any thin blue walls or any other thin blue lines that may have existed um, up until this point. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I, I'm to the point where I, this is California. It's a very <laughs> litigious state. There's a camera everywhere as in everywhere else. Uh, these agencies aren't so much willing to try to cover up stuff as much as, as people may think. I don't believe in the thin blue wall. I don't see it. So I don't, I'm, maybe it's just because I'm not part of it. I don't know. But it's just, I've actually found a lot of my coworkers to be inquisitive about different things and to maybe even ask more questions about, well, what do you think? Well, why would, why would, why, why would this happen? And I would have to explain to them, you don't know what the person's experience has been before you make contact with them. Just like they don't know what your experience has been before they make contact with you. But for black people, it's not usually a result of that one-time contact. It's usually a result of years, maybe even some cases, decades of, of distrust and being treated unfairly by law enforcement officers. It may have nothing to do with that contact that you have yourself. But if you just have a little bit of patience and you respect a little bit more, don't think that just because we're wearing a badge, you have to talk a certain way or, or try to bully anyone. A lot of times your mouth can, can bring understanding and compliance, period. And you don't have to use any of your tools on your belt if you're able to use your mind and your mouth and just your heart, just to understand people and take a little time to hear them out. And I think uh, lately there's been a little bit more of that going on, people willing to do so, but uh, I'm always talking anyway, so I'll tell them when I think something's out of pocket and I'll tell them why. And that's it. If they don't like it, sorry, but, you know, we all need to, to hear some of the truth sometimes. And sometimes we absolutely have to take responsibility for our profession. So we don't help ourselves out sometimes. And that part is frustrating to me because it just seems to keep happening and keep happening and keep happening. Uh, but I do realize that in a sense, there's a difference in regions. Um, as far as law enforcement, like some of the things that have happened in other states, I see absolutely no reason to happen because we have tools. And I don't know if you guys know about the rap where you are, but that's another thing. And, and I'm sure Trey will get into some of that stuff, about mitigating factors and things like that. But. And Brandon, why don't we let you jump in? Thank you. <laughs> 
Thanks, Julius. Yeah, sure. No, I think this is such an interesting. I I feel um, you know I got out of policing in December of 2019, um, and then sure George Floyd in transition to some like a nascent career, like literally in biomedical research, uh, you know, with the intersection of drug policy and public health. And all of a sudden, um, George Floyd was was killed, right, in Minneapolis. And, um, you know, my phone started ringing. Hey, Brandon, you've done 23 years in policing. You got a PhD where you wrote a dissertation in the, uh, just literally the political philosophy of policing and democracy. What do you think about all this? And And I felt like, you know, I've said, I hear, I love actually being on this, uh, this podcast because I'm looking at, at, at a man and a woman who I can tell just love the profession, are proud to have been in it. Um, we don't get much of that these days. It feels pretty um, beleaguered. And I, I, I see two actively serving officers who were reminding me of what I loved. I would have loved to have been, not to say in the locker room, Rashad, but like somewhere in that <laughs> informal set, right? Like that informal setting where we could uh, um, just like speak our minds about our days at work. Because right now, I think there's a lot of tensions that need to be resolved. And one that I see is, um, if I can take the liberty, is, is uh, you know, let's call ourselves colleagues broadly. Two black colleagues saying, I do and don't at the same time agree with all of the monolithic statements about policing the black community, right? There's, there's I've been told by activists, you don't listen to the black community. You don't listen to uh, what the black community needs about policing. And I, I would counter and say, what is this monolithic, single-minded community that you're talking about? And you can see in Chicago, you can see in Minneapolis, some people say abolish or defund in that community, and others saying, wait, 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 hold on. Um, I don't think so. I actually value my police protection, and I want it there when I need it. And then we have men and women of color who are wearing the uniform saying, this is my life's work, and I'm here to protect that community. And I think we need to be more sensitive about that and resolve it. Um, I also think that we need to take stock of of um, of, of this this fundamental paradox in policing, which is that the most liberal cities seem like these siren calls for um, not siren police siren, but like the Greek sirens, right? These siren calls for progressive uh, chiefs. You know, Charlottesville needs a progressive chief. Seattle needs a progressive chief. Um, uh, Portland needs a progressive chief. Burlington. Uh, I'll tell you, like these. Progressive cities seem like a canvas for reform. They have been the most relentlessly unforgiving of their police chiefs. That's of right. Any of the American cities, in fact, driving them out in ways that I think really, really damages the profession. Chris Mangus was uh, he's an openly gay reform chief who was posing with Black Lives Matter protesters with their signs a decade ago or more before it was ever tolerated right. as, a, as a political statement. He had to offer his resignation. It wasn't accepted. It had to offer it. Um, a few weeks ago because of a horrific death. Uh, but if you look at, the, you know, nobody becomes the chief of Seattle, the chief of Portland, because they, they, they want to stick knives in their eyes and they're secretly super reactionary conservative chiefs that just want to stick it to a city. No, they, they, they want to lead cities into the 21st century with policing. But look, the chief of Seattle has resigned. The chief of Portland had to resign. Um, the chief of Dallas, African-American woman, you, Renee Hall, she resigned uh, yesterday. Um, yeah. it, 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 you know where there's, there, there's like a lot of peace in policing in like very conservative cities that don't want to reform. So I think we got to fix that if we're looking to get police leadership to really make a difference. And there's a lot more to say, but I think, I think that's a good start. Well, I think that, uh, you know, not everyone's as aware of the kind of like inner workings of the departments or kind of like the political pressures on these chiefs. And obviously 
change is tough, especially when you're trying to change a relationship that is generations, you know, old and is, you know, and there's a lot of political factors trying to make it not change in the ways that I think people on the ground are advocating for. Um, but obviously these are, a lot of these people are resigning, not because there was impatience with their progressive policies or politics. It's about these incidences that happen that kind of just completely shatter any belief that these departments or these leaders um, are able to control these incidences. I mean, here, so we've talked a little bit broadly about the profession and kind of like the different dynamics that are at play. I think that what I would be curious to hear is a little bit more specifically your opinion. I mean, because for the layperson, we look at the news, we look at, you know, Derek Chauvin, or we look at kind of what happened to Breonna Taylor in Louisville, and we're just like, under what circumstances is this tolerable, you know? And like, how can this even be something that all police are not the most vocally opposed to? Because you'd think that if I'm a good cop and I want to be reform-minded and I want to see black and brown people in my community feel safe, that I would be disgusted and, and, and vocally opposed to the cops who make us all look like that, you know? Because it's really hard for you to do your job when people think like, you know, like what Julia said, it's not about my interaction with you, it's my perception and maybe my kind of history of encounters with other police officers. So like when we come to, you know, what happened to George Floyd and, and what happened to Breonna Taylor and others, what, I mean, what are your thoughts about those incidences? You know, I mean, are there some that you find like completely egregious, like we don't have to learn more information about it to know it was wrong or like, how do you guys make sense of these specific incidences? You know, obviously they're one of millions of interactions, but they're extremely impactful in terms of public perception. So if I could just reflect for a moment and let's just talk about it more um, versus the specifics as to why there's a finally an outcry, right? Because we've been naming names for a very long time, you know, if we start to go back, you know, Rodney King was the very first one in 1991. So from 1991 to 2020, there are a litany of names, some that we, you know, the families will never forget, but it has happened so frequently that most of us can't go through and name wall after wall after wall after wall. But there's these ones that really just stay with us and linger and we can't shake it off no matter what, right? As we think about police reform, as we think about all of these issues. There's something I wanna, I think that is really important about how do we get somewhere from where we are now, right? How do we, you know, reshape, reimagine a future of policing, a co-production of public safety that we all agree on, as I say, as we renegotiate that social contract with the communities that we serve on how they would be served. So I think the one thing that really um, concerns me around um, not only just the incidents, it's almost building on what Brandon said, is what are we willing to do as a society to make sure that we eliminate, um, however we do that, those systemic cultural issues that are existing in policing that allow for very um, non-reform-minded chiefs to stay in their places and you don't elevate the voices of those persons who've been advocating for reform, 
and you don't create allies and alliances with them so that you can rip this system apart from the inside. And that's what we refuse to do. We, were, we, we take the easy way out and accept resignations from really these thoughtful, intentional leaders in policing, you know, like Carmen Best, like Renee Hall, um, already going after Danielle Outlaw in Philadelphia. You know, I am under attack every day in Charlottesville, right? So it's easier to get rid of this individual chief and let's see what happens. It's not going to change the culture of that agency or that policing agency. An example I say all the time is they fire coaches in football, right? Being from Pittsburgh, huge stealer, huge football fan, right? I'm not going to, I mean, just huge. They fire coaches. But here's what happens. When that coach is gone, if you don't leave somebody in place long enough to undo whatever that defense they have been training under, whether it's a nickel defense, dime defense, you know, whether you're pass rushing, whatever you're doing, if you don't change the culture of it, all you're going to get is a new coach who's the new shiny object that's only going to last two to three years before someone demands that turnover. So these, these incidents that are occurring nationally are not only egregious, I've spoken out for decades on police violence, not police brutality, let's call it what it is, police violence, and how we have created cultures where that is um, part of the culture and the DNA of policing. And if we as a society don't demand change from those persons who aren't willing to change, and I can name agency after agency after agency um, where there's no willingness to change. But we unfortunately keep putting um, these chiefs on these glass cliffs where they're going to fall off and along the way down, there's no way they can be successful. So we have to decide as a society, literally what kind of policing that we want for society and then go for it. And I'm all for national standards. I'm all for a national policing standard, but unfortunately in the United States, it looks so much like these authoritarian states, right? That we're not willing to do the hard work because with freedom comes responsibility. And oftentimes we want all the benefits of it, but not digging deep for some of the responsibilities that we all have as a collective community to correct the issue. Okay, Rochelle, let's see. Well. Well, first of all, you're, you're breaking up just a bit, so I'm going to to move on to another guest while yours um, shakes out. But I, I guess, so I, we're gonna get to the kind of issues about um, kind of leadership and like what kind of police accountability and what kind of leadership within these organizations needs to be uplifted and supported for us to see change. I guess what I'm looking for, I mean, the reason I'm asking this question is I think that, you know, it's very easy to see police who, you know, experience incidences like, like, you know, looking at the same videos we look at, but all we hear from them is kind of their kind of like official line or their kind of like, you know, delaying of weighing in until the facts are gotten. And I think it's easy to kind of dehumanize. I mean, I don't know how people are going to feel about me saying this, but it's also easy to dehumanize police as people who don't also experience these things emotionally. And they're also looking at their colleagues. So, you know, digitally, maybe Brandon, 
since maybe you're, you know, kind of off the force, like what did it feel like to be a, a person who is a police officer and like see like this officer kneeling on George Floyd's neck? Like, how did you experience that? And like, how did you make that feel about like, to, I, I'm, this is going to be bad football metaphor. That's not my sport, but you know, if there's a guy on my team who's fumbling the ball every time he gets it, then if I'm on that team, I want to say, get this guy off the field. You know, we don't really hear that as much from law enforcement. I think it would go a long way to hear other cops be like, that guy is, needs to not be a police officer. I can't imagine that he's allowed to act like that. And that's not who we are. Like, can someone kind of, from an emotional perspective, kind of speak to that? It's, it's, it's so interesting what you say. Um, you know, I used to say, in less dire times that, you know, it, so, so attorneys are an exception because attorneys are in an adversarial profession where they literally make a living telling the public and each other how bad they are. Like, you know, I'm the better lawyer. That lawyer's argument is preposterous. But when you look at medicine, for example, like this medical malpractice will continue to unjustifiably kill manifold more Americans than police violence ever will. It just happens behind closed doors in ways that doesn't have the visible traumatic effect. It's not open to public scrutiny. But but if you're just looking at lives ended by professional incompetence, medicine will beat police until the end of time. But you never ever hear doctors saying, there's a doctor, I'm on the East Coast, and there's a doctor on the West Coast that totally screwed that up. And I want the world to know that doctors better get their act together. Otherwise, um, you know, our profession is, is in danger. Part of it is because I said that the malpractice happens in private. Part of it is just because professions don't treat each other that way. But the problem with policing and, and I, don't, sorry, I don't fully accept the justification of what I just said. Policing doesn't divide and conquer. It conquers by dividing, by dividing itself. And that's, I'll tell you what I mean. When an officer is, is killed in the line of duty, we all come together as brothers and sisters. We all say we're all blue. We all bleed blue. This officer could have been me, could have been, could have been Rochelle, could have been Ju Julius, could have been any officer on any coast uh, at any time. We're together in this. When something horrible happens for years and years and years in terms of police brutality or violence, we go, no, 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 no. We're not, oh, that's that department. That's not my department. That's that officer. That's not me. I don't have to change anything because I'm not, I'm not the, the, the dude who beat Rodney King. And what it is, is, is I, I thought it was it's this very insidious problem where that's what I mean, conquer by dividing. There's 17,000 police departments. Each one is a fiefdom. Most of the chiefs have just come up through the ranks of their police departments. They know the, the union head because it's a, a guy or gal, usually a guy that they came up with. They know all the senior commanders because they're their buddies. Cultural change, even if it's necessary, is very, very, very hard. And what they've had the luxury of doing is saying, uh, you know, George Floyd's not going to happen here. Jordan Edwards is not going to happen here. Breonna Taylor's not going to happen here. Because sincerely, actuarially, it's just not. Actuarially, if you look at the, the most uncharitable numerator of people killed and put it over the denominator of police departments, you can always roll the dice and say, it's not going to happen here, and it probably won't. The problem is, is Americans have wised up to the fact that it could happen anywhere. And it can happen anywhere because of fundamental problems with police culture um, that, that have been very, very hard to... Uh, to wrap our hands around. And then the real tragedy is like, I look at Julius and Rochelle, you know, I'm out of the profession, uh, but you have this tension where there exists this very insidious problem that Rochelle alluded to. I mean, Rochelle is a woman better, uh, 
testified in federal court against cops in favor of uh, a man they shot, right? Um, you have people who join for all the right reasons to do all the right things, but then they're part of this system that's in tremendous tension with tremendous problems and is very resistant to change. And it doesn't hesitate to like come together in the, in the, in, in, in the, in the, we all bleed blue brotherhood and sisterhood when, when there's glory, but then when there's shame, we just melt down into 17,000 different police departments. And now that's come home to roost. I mean, I also feel like there, I mean, I've seen some examples. I want to say it was Buffalo uh, when the old man got shoved by the cop. And then you saw all the cops who were EMTs resign in protest because of the mayor's kind of rhetorical response to that. Like, I do feel like there still is this reflex to say, you know, all of us or none of us, even the worst ones will protect until our dying breath. And like, that's the part it's the accountability that I think is really difficult. I mean, I guarantee, yes, a lot of people go to the hospital and die because the doctor didn't know what they were doing. But if that same doctor was in the street kneeling on people's necks and killing them, that person would be in jail forever, you know? And I think that that's the standard. It's like, I don't, police are supposed to protect. Yes, a doctor, and a, you know, a doctor who's killing lots of people will go to jail for malpractice, you know? So like, that's the difference too. So. I, I really I mean, I, appreciate I, no, no, you saying I, that because I think that I, I, I agree. I'm not, I'm, believe me, I'm not justifying and I, I'm dying to hear what you, I saw a facial expression on Julius. I'm dying to hear what, what he has to say. But me I mean, too, yeah. <laughs> two, two things real quick, Julius, if you don't mind. Um, one, that brotherhood and sisterhood is, is usually, I put it right up there with medicine. Doctors, I, I believe if you're a doctor and a person's in danger, they're choking, they have a medical emergency. No matter, you know, no matter where they are, that doctor will get involved, right? You see cops, right. I, I, I have broken up sexual assaults and progress off duty. I have broken up robberies off duty. I know any self-respecting uh, um, cop would. That idea that we'll all come together anywhere. If I was in California on vacation, and Julius, I probably will not go to California to go on vacation. But if I was and I saw a cop I never met before struggling at the side of the road with somebody, fighting out, I would get out and help that man woman <clears throat> doctors are that is what makes the profession great but it, it is also what um what expose that type of bond exposes us to a tremendous liability when it comes to to like res, just plain old uh resistance to cultural change and also using very 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 ham-fisted interventions uh, against communities of color to, to control crime that are just not keeping up with science but the last thing i will say is i Doctors created the opioid crisis, which consistently kills 60 to 70,000 people a year for years and years, like in front of their eyes, prescribing more oxy than you could possibly swim in, knowing what was happening, reading about it, knowing that like, hey, we're prescribing so much of this drugs that like people are showing up dead. And like they were very, very, very slow to account for it. And none of them have paid a serious price, except for very, very few who've lost their license. So this says nothing about policing. All I'm saying is that if you... If you want to understand the, incult, the cultural problems with policing, we can take a broader lens and understand the cultural problems in like a lot of self-protecting professions. It's just very acute and very problematic in policing. It's got to be fixed. Thank you, Julius. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, that was good stuff. That was really good stuff. It just leads me to so much in my mind. It's like he started out with the George Floyd thing. And, and to me, that was completely, completely, completely egregious, even though there was no firearm per se used like some other ones have been right. horrific. Um, and I look at that one, and, and, and that's the perfect one I bring up, the rap. Um, 
and none of the agencies that I've ever been a, a part of, and as far back as when I was in the academy, two men who actually were my academy instructors invented the rap. Uh, Mr. Officer Zamolo and Officer Odell from Walnut Creek. They were my two of my instructors, t- TAC instructors. Can we, you explain what the rap is? Because I yeah, feel like I don't some, even know what that is. So, yeah, okay. some don't know, yeah. You, know, you guys never heard of the rap? No, we have, but his not audience may not have. Yeah. Okay, so so the rap is... And we're not talking NWA, we're talking... Right, right. R- I know that rap. The W-R-A-P, <laughs> this one is the W-R-A-P. W-R-A-P. It's, it's, it's like a so perfect example, George Floyd. In that instant, uh, to me, I did not see fighting. I saw resisting, and part of it, it seemed like he was generally concerned or fearful because he was claustrophobic or whatever you want to call it, but he, he, he kept pleading. His, his, his verbiage was, you know, kind of explained what it is. You know when you're in a fight for your life, and you know when someone's trying to escape, and I didn't get any of that, but... Once you get a man in custody you're, or a woman in custody, you're in charge. Once you, once you have custody, you have control and you have care. You, you, you have to do that as a law enforcement officer. Uh, for us, I'm so glad we used the wrap. The wrap is, it's basically like a real strong vinyl blanket, basically, for lack of a better term, that you put around the legs once they're handcuffed. And it's Velcro's in three different places. And so it kind of wraps your legs together like a, like a burrito. Some people have called it the burrito wrap. Um, and it has the Velcro on your legs. You can't kick, you can't run, and you're handcuffed, so you can't punch. Then there's a uh, kind of a vest that goes over your head, and it's just a vest uh, that your arms go through your handcuff. And so then you connect the vest together, and you tie uh, – there's a strap from the legs. There's a carabiner, and there's a carabiner on the chest. So basically the result of that leaves a suspect in an L shape with the legs here and his torso here, his or her torso here with the hands behind the back. That's complete and full control. There's no possibility of asphyxiation because you can't breathe. There's nobody on your chest. There's nobody on your back. There's nobody has to do that to you. You could sit somebody up. You could prop them up with your leg. You can hold them with your arms. You could sit them up against the patrol car or the wall. So for me to see that, I had a lot of questions. I was like, so do they not have any of these things or are they just but to see his face and i think that's what infuriated me the most is just to see um the lack of concern and the on on chauvin's face when he had his knee in his on his head and 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 the man was yelling he's trying to yell or talking saying he couldn't breathe you know that 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 brings some very uh, serious emotions to the to the forefront but i have to say even of my other white co-workers i would have to say <laughs> Probably 99% of the ones I've spoken to found that absolutely, completely egregious. Um, So, go ahead, Rochelle. But I think that the bigger issue is this. Um, And so Brandon is right, and Trey, you, you are exactly right on this. There has been a lack of holding ourselves collectively is what you're asking for, accountability, and owning how we contribute to systems, right? Um, how we actively partic- contribute to systems. And um, I wasn't ignoring you all, but I was pulling up a op-ed that I'm finishing writing. And one of the things I cite in here is particularly out of Minneapolis, um, when you have um, 
Lieutenant Bob Crow, who's the president of the Police Officers Foundation of Minneapolis, in 2019 says, the Obama administration and the handcuffing and oppression of police was despicable. The first thing President Trump did when he took office was turn that around. He decided to let cops do their job, put the handcuffs on the criminals instead. So here's what's interesting about that. When you think that the ideology is that we have been cuffed because we are required to treat people humanely and not see them as others, it talks to a systemic issue of cultural oppression and cultural supremacy, um, particularly where somebody like Brandon and myself and Julius are eventually going to be forced out of it because you're exhausted fighting these tidal waves um, of, of, you know, championship and tidal waves of just being an advocate, right? After a while, you just become exhausted with it. I literally am having discussions um, with IACP um, President Kes Stevens and saying, hey, here's some things that are going wrong. And you as the IACP, the International Association Chiefs of Police President, are you pushing back on the administration to say, we don't agree with this. This is a bad philosophy. This is something else. And basically he writes back to me in his statement on May 31st, police leaders and the officers they command will need to embrace the concerns and criticisms that have been given voice during these protests and re-examining their approaches and policies. We'll need to work tirelessly um, to issue to get the trust of the communities. But back in March, when I'm confronting him on this, before all of this, in private emails, he's basically telling me, we're working really hard with the Trump administration to get a seat at the table. And what I say to him is, is that seat at the table worth the price of our admission, that we are going to really, um, really just ostracize black and brown communities so that you can have access, that you're willing to sell us out. So. Until we as a nation come against those powerhouse unions and the impact that the unions have on our profession, we are at the mercy. And I say we, those of us, you know, they don't always see me, they don't always see Brandon, or they definitely won't see Julius in his role or Trey even you. They'll just see you as a threat, right? Until we get some control over that, then we're gonna find ourselves in these same positions. And I've even called out during a national mayor's conference, said, you know what, you're complicit. Because in front of these cameras, you say you want police reform, but in back doors, you're signing their contracts. The mayors are the ones who sign these agreements and what the contracts will look like. You bargained away how your police officers will police community for their votes and their endorsements. So you wanna change the culture, you need to expose also those political affiliations as well. Well, I'm so thank you very much for saying that. Cause I mean, there's been so many moments like that where I'm like, they need better PR these police because the people who are speaking on their behalf are pouring kerosene on an already very, very fragile and inflamed relationship, you know? And so I, I think that that, cause I was going to talk about unions next, but you said everything I wanted to get out of you guys, which is that sometimes I think that the real sentiment uh, and the real desire to kind of like 
this meet this crisis with genuine compassion and collaboration and you know innovation of like new tactics is is undermined by the people who kind of get in front and say we're the victims you know it's like it's really hard to hear that so i'm glad that you kind of addressed that and i want to be conscious of our time so i I wanted to kind of speak to you know there are some things i think that can change that maybe all departments could enact that would make a difference. And obviously there's some that would work in California or maybe there's like a wrap that should be instituted in Chicago. I don't know. Can you guys each speak briefly to kind of some of the things you think would be universal and things that you'd like to see kind of in your regions that might help? Uh, I'm sure we're still Oh, please, don't go, go ahead, Julius. Yeah. I was letting Brandon go in as our yeah. public health person to take it as a public health approach and then Julius and then if you want, I'll swing <laughs> it at the end. Yeah. That's yeah, listen, um, <laughs> I thought Rochelle made a really good point about uh, Trump and and um, and the International Association Chiefs of Police. They, our primary, you know, there's the Police Foundation. I was on the phone with the director of the foundation today. That's a science and innovation-based organization, but it has a smaller constituency. Police Executive Research Forum is like this quasi-elite that you have, you have to have a certain – I said that because I knew that Rochelle would make a face. Um, you know – that if you're like a, a certain type of chief in a liberal city or a big city, you have a seat at the table. The International Association of Chiefs of Police, all you have to do is be a chief of any police department. The average police department has like 17 people in it, and you are a full, you, you know, you have as much voting power and as much influence as, uh, you know, the chief of the New York City or Chicago Police Department. And so it really goes to the lowest bidder. And in, in that culture, there's a huge incentive to, um, align with uh, uh, President Trump. And I, I've written in the New York Times saying that, that accepting Trump's love and devotion and, and, and um, affection like might feel good, but it will infuriate communities of color that, that, that see him as a very, very problematic racist president, and it will destroy trust. And when the New York City Policeman's Benevolent Association endorses Trump, it undoes um, just all the work that all good cops are doing out there to try to really make a bond with, uh, with their communities. And that is going to be a huge problem as we go forward. But as far as the innovation goes, um, one of the things that inspired my transition after policing, the direction I took when I left, was, um, is, was a public health direction. Because I think that if you look at public health is community and population level interventions to decrease morbidity, which is illness and, and injury, and decrease mortality, which is death. If you talk to Rochelle about what her mission is as the chief of Charlottesville, it's to do her part in her sector with violence to reduce injuries, to reduce overdose, right? To reduce all these negative consequences and to reduce violent death, right? And not just for one neighborhood in Charlottesville, but for an entire community. And so if you look at public health, like right now, we, uh, police leaders have been allowed to say, um, you know, I'm going to take more guns off the street. I'm going to get more kilos off the street. I'm going to make more arrests. I'm going to close more cases. They've never been asked to go the extra step of saying, what will my work do to increase a community's public health, to make the lives longer, to make them healthier, to increase community resilience? And, and they haven't been held accountable for, the, you know, if, if that's the question, then arrests, then seizures, then tickets, then incarceration, has a lot of negative health consequences and resiliency consequences that, that they don't even have to speak to. So you have this typical interview where a mayor or a city council is asking a chief candidate in the inter- interview, the job interview, what are you going to do um, 
to increase community policing in our jurisdiction? And they will give, that's the question, right? And I see Rochelle shaking because she knows that is like everything and nothing all at once. And, and every person who's made it to the, the final interview can give some meaningless account of I'm going to have coffee with a cop. I'm going to get community input. I'm going to do X, Y, Z and get closer to the community. And everybody nods and they go, uh, all right, you know, Brandon or Rochelle or Danielle or, 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 or Carmen's got the job. If you instead ask, what will you do to make sure that your police work aligns with our city's vision for public health? That's right. You can't give a BS answer. There's a science behind it. There's a specific definition. If you start talking about arrests, if you, anything you start talking about, they will say, well, take me to the next, to the final endpoint where the community's healthier, where it's more resilient, and where people are living longer, better lives. And until they show a plan that gets you from A to Z, arrests, seizures, tickets, coffee with a cop, community meetings are all meaningless until you explain in a public health account right. how to get to that final step of a healthier community. If I could do one thing, it would be to get it into the next president's head. Hopefully, you know, you see where my, my intentions lie, but get it into the next president's head, hopefully soon. But that is what we start. We need to demand that of our police at a national level. That's right. Thank you. And Michelle, yeah. I mean, I'll just, I want to have one comment about that because I thought that was yeah. really brilliant is I think that kind of establishing a shared vision, you know, that the police like plays his part, community plays their part, police play their part. And all together, we're creating this, this place we all say we want to go. I mean, I feel like a lot of work has to get for most of these mayors to even establish a compelling and, and kind of articulated vision that even people can plug into. But that's another that's, that's another point. podcast as well. But I think that's a really good point is like to see their role is is not one that's purely punitive, but is to support kind of the overall health and wellness and thrivingness of a community. So and Julius, uh, you'd have to first know what the vision and mission and value as far as public health would be for your city, which I'm sure most chief candidates don't even think about. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> one thing on the point of uh, trying to get on the same page. You two know very well about Lexapol, right. and it's amazing how we have a Lexapol, but there's still so much difference. Uh, Lexapol is, is basically uh, an entity that goes in and tries to universalize police policy. Uh, I have probably eight Lexapol updates I'm supposed to review and remember like right now, <laughs> but it never happens. You know, so our, our policies are created by other people for the most part. Uh, and, and it's in an effort to become more universal, but it is still such, so, so many differences. Um, one thing I believe police departments need to do is when you say things to the public, don't let that be just that coating, that crust, because once the cameras leave or the people leave, they go right back to doing what they want to do. And it's like, uh, they only they only speak in that manner um, when they feel like they have to, either for their political lives or for their jobs or for whatever. Um, and another thing in law, law enforcement, they don't want you to promote if they don't feel like you can fit in. If you don't, if you're not a safe choice, doesn't matter how much you bring to the table. They want you to be homogenized with them. You can't have your own free thinking a lot of times. A lot of times that's held against you or you'll be called a renegade if you 
speak out too much against things you think are wrong or things that you think are wrong, not maybe with the community, but within the department. They don't like that at all. So that's why you keep getting this promotion process of people who think alike, because those are the ones they want to come up underneath them. Either one, you're easily controlled, or you just won't make waves, or you'll just sit back and do as told. And I think that is a problem because it, when you keep having that cycle, you're not having fresh thoughts. You're not having uh, cultural differences come in because if you're black and you're promoted, um, what I've noticed is right away they try to beat you into submission. And that's one of the reasons why here I really don't care about promoting because I'm always going to be myself. I can do more good to my community and, and, and the entire city and the people I serve by being me because I'm not muffled and I refuse to be muffled. I'm not a loud mouth. I'm very articulate with my words and 90% and of the people you would ever talk to and meet me would say, that guy can talk people into handcuffs or that guy stopped and helped kids and old ladies or whatever, you know, that's the typical thing. But if it's time to get down, it's time to get down. I'm not afraid of that either. And, and so, but administrations have to stop being afraid to let people in who don't always think like them. Because maybe those thoughts and in those conversations that you're having behind closed doors, you may actually start to understand something that you didn't before, or maybe something that you were missing from the community because you only pay attention to a certain portion of the community. Um, that's one thing that really irritates me about law enforcement now. It seems to be really, really over-politicized. It's more about the words and the programs you say you want to put in and implement than the actual actions and inclusion. Um, and that's a problem. Yeah, if I was to go ahead. No, no, Trey, this is yours. Remember, it's your house we're visiting. <laughs> well, I mean, but you're like, but like, I only have you for, they get to see me all the time. Like, this is an opportunity for you guys to say something about, I mean, I think that definitely, and we didn't speak too much to this, but like, imagine the culture inside these departments that people who have, you know, bold new ideas or who want to expose corruption or uh, practices or, you know, increased accountability, like, I I I would I would expect that those people would be uh, they'd have a really hard road ahead of them to kind of gain a leadership, you know. And I'm assuming that among chiefs, that you know, especially the ones that kind of were able to overcome some of that to become in positions of power, there must be a really established WhatsApp text group of just like, oh my god, like can you believe that dealing with, you know? Actually, we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I cannot. I mean, I mean, you need it. Yeah, no, no joke. We really do have one of those um, where I literally say to my sisters with the AH at the end of it, like, this is really, um, this is a moment. But if we could just build on what Brandon said, really, just briefly as you do your wrap up. Um, so he's right. In my interview for this position, they asked me about my community policing philosophy and programs. And I said, I don't have one. And anybody who tells you they do have one, you need to fire them now. You need to find a person who is value and vision aligned with what this community needs to be healthy, healthy. Um, and I said, and we need to ask the question right from the beginning, what does a healthy relationship look like between law enforcement, police and the communities they serve? How will we know 
you know, what do we have as metrics to, to get us there and with tools to get us there? And how will we know if we've been successful? We need to do this much like a logic model, right? We need to quit acting on instincts and do this like a public health emergency. Um, and if we treat it that way, then egos go out the door, right? If you treat police violence as a disease and we're all working to eradicate it, no one says, ah, you know, I'm ostracized because I'm the one who's found the solution. No, it's celebrated, right? We need to really think about the profession as a profession that's held in high esteem. And we only recruit the best of the best um, who are looking at this. And society um, needs to, to, to think about how they want to have policing in their, their communities. We have to build communities that are absolutely resilient, but not reliant upon formalized policing. And the, the, the way to do that is to come together as a community and figure out how we police ourselves, you know, much like we do in our own homes with community support so that we can all be successful. That this institution has, has rotten roots. So when something has rotten roots um, and built on a system of supremacy, you don't just keep, you know, covering it up or just putting other flowers around it. You dig deep, pull it out, and then you decide if you want to replant something or not. Um, it may be time to look at it very differently or to look at some models from across the nation and not be so um, stuck on what we have here as being the best um, that it may not be. And it looks like that way based on the number of homicides that we have here, the, the police encounters that we have here that lead to in custody deaths. Um, and I appreciate Brandon's example about the doctors, right? But normally that's a one-on-one -on -one relationship and covenant that you have with a doctor when you go to choose to have surgery or malpractice. This is a national covenant that we have with our policing agencies. It says we will give up our freedoms to police ourselves and we're gonna hand it over to you. And if we're gonna hand over something that's sacred to you, you don't violate that covenant. You don't violate that contract. And then you must hold us accountable when we do that. And until we're ready to own our part in this, probably as Prince EA says, boy from your side, homeboy from your side of the town, he's like, this is why this will continue to happen in 2020 because we don't take responsibility and ownership and we don't see um, the humanity in others who aren't necessarily wearing blue. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a hundred percent right. I think that, you know, you know, no, no, you, you first of all, I, I, My son is like, before we, before we depart, I have one more comment I want to ask each of you to make, but before that we can wrap up with me just saying, how much I appreciate this. I think a lot of the things that each of you have said are refreshing, you know, in their honesty, but also kind of in their rarity. You know, it's like so unusual for, you know, us to hear kind of like this type of um, sentiment from people in law enforcement. And I know that you're not the only ones. And so I thought it would be valuable to see what you guys think. And it has been, and I really appreciate it. I mean, so many good points about, you know, kind of changing the culture of policing, kind of changing how we even frame the relationship between police and communities as one of, you know, benefit as opposed to punishment. I mean, cause I mean, I think it was AOC who was, you know, when you talk about defunding, 
you're basically just saying that, you know, the poor black and brown communities will be like white ones where there's really not that many interactions with police, where they have good schools and they are healthy and they have lots of kind of uh, mental health resources and things that kind of prevent people from going down the road where over enforcement is the only way to deal with the issues. And so I think that crafting that vision for the entire and not just certain parts of it and letting the other ones languish to the point where we just, because the thing is we give you guys a lot of work to do that we shouldn't because we have not been as motivated to provide the necessary resources to these communities that would prevent you guys from being the only solution. You know, it's like we're putting a hammer where in places we need band-aids and surgeries and, and reading and all that kind of stuff. So I could go on, but I, I just think that it's been really refreshing here kind of you guys hold yourselves and your profession accountable i think that these are the kind of conversations that will lead to um healing which i think more than anything else it's like we can't start from scratch because there's too much that's gone on but we can begin to heal together and i i think this has done a lot of that and so before we go i just wanted to give each of you the chance to i don't know who will watch this but to you know to speak to the person who uh is even after hearing all of this, so skeptical that like any police uh, care about them, that there is a hopeful future that we can work towards. Like, what might you say to someone who um, has learned to be distrustful and not, you know, and has been dismissive of hope about what could possibly happen to fix this? Is there a message you give to kind of inspire them to hold on? From my end, I, I would say it's, it's kind of like a lot of things. There's way more good than bad people in the police department, not just officers, but other people who you're going to have contact with, community service officers and, and then everything else like that. Um, there are people inside that are trying to make change from the inside as well as what everybody should know. It's not just, you know, I'm on the outside and I'm on the inside. And it's like we're trying. You know, you have to just keep talking and sometimes you will be looked at kind of side eye, which is fine. I'm good with that. You know, I've been okay with that for quite some time, but um, we have to hold the leaders just as accountable as you hold the people out on the street. You can't be wishy-washy. You have to be fair, firm, and consistent. You can't let certain officers get away with things because they've been around 30 years and then a new guy who's been around 30 months, you treat them different. I mean... It has to be some consistency. Uh, fair, firm, and consistent is the way I've been taught. Um, but, but you know, it, it's not all lost. People are really trying, and those who are working with the police department, some are listening to them. You know, so it, it's, it's going to be a rough battle. There's a lot of high emotions, and this whole political stuff doesn't help because I would say, I would venture to tell you myself personally, about 90% of the cops I've ever worked with are Republicans. And they latch on to some of these words. And even if they don't do the actions, because it, it, it caused me to look at my Facebook and say, mm, I might need to delete that one. I didn't know that. But, you know, it makes you look at people a little bit different once they start opening their mouths about the political stuff, especially in this climate. Um, so it's, it's not going to be easy, especially with everything going on right now. But there are officers that really do care about people. There are white officers who are really good people, uh, all kind of people inside the agency who are there for the greater good. That's all they're concerned about. And, and 
I know people who've even lost hope or even the desire to promote because they don't feel like they're going to fit in with that mold. So they stay where they are and they try to affect change where they are. Um, so it, it's not all lost. Anybody else? So I would just only add um, to those communities who, and I don't use words like protest, um, who are out there and they're rallying and um, they're marching, right? They are doing what we say we should be doing um, when we want change. And um, it is prolonged and it is sustained. Um, I support that. It is causing this movement to have movement, right? Um, I support that 100%. Um, stay out there doing what you do, right? So that there can be real sustained change. Um, the only caution I give anyone is don't let someone else co-op your movement, co-op your struggle, co-op um, your vision for reform and for change. Because this is a lot of, this is a time when there are people, as I call them, they're very predatory um, to be in the limelight so that there's a temporary moment. Um, don't let that happen. Don't let someone silence your authentic voice. Stay at it. And just like you shut down I-95, just that, like you shut down any other corridor, you shut down every voting booth that you can go to staying as close as you can demanding the change that you rightfully deserve. You rightfully deserve. Um, hold fast to, um, huge, you know, I've taken these in front of, in uniform long before they were doing it when my boy Colin was doing it. I'm like, yo, my sister too, right? Don't let someone co-op your message for these photo op moments. If you see these police chiefs taking these, see what they're doing next week. If you see these police chiefs um, and mayors and governors out there doing this, ask them what their policies look like. Examine their hiring practices. Look at their advisory boards. Don't just let them get away with a photo op moment to co-op what you're demanding for yourself. Um, and know that there are people who are vocal and will support you um, in doing that and demanding the change. Um, because this is a profession that I am proud of to be a part of, not always proud of the profession, but I am definitely proud to be a part of this um, and we'll stay in this until I'm led somewhere else. It's hard to follow on these, uh, you know, these, these remarks except to second them, but I just, Sean Peake is a New Jersey police officer who died, uh, I think yesterday, he jumped in a river to save a suspect. Um, he, you know, there was a woman who was, was fleeing the police after throwing things in an ambulance. She falls, falls into the river. He dives right in with all his gear on to uh, save her life, uh, ends up yeah. dying. And that's what police do. I know three officers who were murdered in the line of duty um, trying to save the lives of others. I think of Pete Bogoski. He was an officer killed in the 75th Precinct in East Flatbush. He was responding to a home invasion robbery of one drug dealer in the house of another drug dealer trying to rip him off at gunpoint. You, when you go to a home invasion robbery, you know it's probably going to be one criminal ripping off another criminal. That's what happens 90% of the time. But you go anyway because you know that lives are on the line and you want to save those lives. 
he went in and he ended up getting shot in the head. He left two daughters behind. I'm not saying these dramatic recountings to say that makes everything good. That's that that excuses all of this. I'm saying that's the heart. This selflessness is the heart of the profession. When Julia says it's more good than bad, that's what he means. That that, that there are men and women willing to to not only risk their lives to save others, but save highly imperfect, flawed people, right? Because life matters to them. And yet it happens in the context of this of this systemic oppression and systemic racism and using police to it that, that taints it. And I think there's a real hunger for great cops and citizens to get rid of that taint. And right. the tragedy would be is if in getting rid of it, we get rid of that ethos about the cop who jumps in the river, the cop who goes to the robbery, the cop who's willing to sacrifice. Like that's what that's that's what that's what every community needs, including black and brown communities. And and I don't want to lose that ethos because we're trying to get rid of the undeniable taint that the profession has. Absolutely. Well, those are all three very powerful messages. Um, like I said, uh, I think that the best way to honor the George Floyds and the Breonna Taylors and the you know Elijah McLeans and the like you said the litany of, of names that would fill a stadium at this point it feels like uh, is to kind of continue these conversations to push for real change and I I genuinely thank you guys for participating in this and I know it's not easy to say yes to this uh, and I I'm so glad that there, you guys are out there kind of um, spreading this this message and and who are really there to change the community and I am. Um, I support that. So thank you. Um, and thank I guess you. we'll tune in soon. So thanks a bunch, guys. Thanks for having me. Pleasure meeting you, Brandon. Be well.